to disrupt or to be disrupted? That is the question. But if both those things happen, what's the answer? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. Back at the turn of the last century, there was an Austrian economist named Alfred Schumpeter. And Schumpeter talked a lot about creative destruction, which is that things had to break and go away in order to be replaced by new things. Now, in this last century, there was a fellow named Clayton Christensen who just passed away, unfortunately, but his his books live on, and that's a good thing. And he kind of turned that turn into creative disruption, which I think is in some ways a less powerful but much more profitable way to look at it. We talk a lot about markets getting disrupted and whether we go out and we disrupt things by doing new and different things or whether things come along like ACA and disrupt our markets for us. The question is not about all of that destruction or disruption. The question is, how do you make lemonade out of lemons? And we brought somebody on today who's an expert in doing all that. His name is Bob Pfeiffer, and Bob is principal at Disruptive Strategies. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, David. So tell us a little bit about your background, just to level set, so folks know kind of what your what informs your thought process. Well, I've been in the benefits, insurance, healthcare arena for, this is my 32nd year. I've worked with companies as small as one or two employees up to some of the biggest companies in the country, which include General Motors and Caterpillar and Navistar. So I've had a breadth of experience across the spectrum from small employers to large. So let's level set for the audience. How do you define disruption? Well, particularly today in healthcare, I have yet to meet an employer who isn't frustrated or disgusted with the current system, uh, particularly those employers that are self-funded, because they have an opportunity to be disruptive, where those that are fully insured have very little hope of being disruptive in any way. So what we try to bring to the market is innovative strategies around healthcare and patient engagement, patient steerage to steer patients to value as opposed to just a specific system. So it's more patient and client-centric than it is system or carrier-centric. Did we have to get to a tipping point? As I said, you know, Schumpeter was talking about creative destruction back in the early 1900s. In our industry, did we have to get to a tipping point where there just was kind of no more runway, the deductibles and the personal responsibility amounts had gotten to the point where they they really couldn't go up anymore, or you'd have people who were functionally uninsured. And and then that kind of spawned more of an interest in partially self-funded plans from all size groups. Did we have to get there before we could start having this serious conversation about disruption? I believe that is accurate. And we certainly have reached that point. We passed it a number of years ago. You know, it used to be employers of 500 or, or more that would 
would look at self-funding and I see employers today and if in the range of 40 or 50 employees trying to change the game for healthcare because they're just sick and tired of eight to ten percent you know bumps in their premiums every year to cover their employees and provide health care and to your point on deductibles and being functionally uninsured that is a hundred percent accurate they have a card but the card doesn't really allow them to seek medical care because it just costs them too much money to access the medical system today. So where do you start? If you're, if you're talking with an advisor or even with a client and they're looking for baby steps, let, let's say they've decided that they're going to go partially self-funded. They've not, I'm not talking so much about level-funded or ASO plans now, but a fully deconstructed health plan where they get to choose their TPA and their best-of-class services, et cetera. Where do you start having that conversation about disruption. What's the low-hanging disruption fruit, if there is such a thing? Yes. So what I try to share with employers is there's a an important sequencing that should happen after you decide to go self-funding. And that is, first and foremost, you absolutely 100% need to get your arms around the medical condition of your employee base and their family members and children. And the best way to do that is, in my opinion, is either an on-site or a nearsight primary care arrangement where the employees can get back into a relationship with a physician, which the systems have destroyed over the last 10, 15 years in this country with the production model for primary care in the healthcare system. So you need to get first and foremost the patients, which is your employees and their families, engaged in their healthcare before you can really take all the other steps that are required to fully disrupt healthcare. Well, and the, the on-site and nearsight clinic stuff is interesting because those of us who live in big cities don't oftentimes think about this, but aren't there loads of rural areas where the problem is exacerbated by the fact that there just aren't a lot of docks or facilities, even within 100, 150 miles of them? Yeah, that's uh, absolutely correct. There's there's two constituencies that we can help with a number of these things. They're both the overserved, which is, boy, we've got too many healthcare systems here and they're you know, collaborating with each other to keep costs high. But to your point, the rural areas are really underserved and you have to drive 60 to 90 minutes to get an appointment that takes three or four months to even see a physician. And so uh, we actually focus on both of those areas. We try to help each of those constituencies with disruptive ways to take control of their healthcare costs. Do you find that folks who are in those areas in the absence of those kinds of local clinic arrangements, whether it's on-site, near-site, shared, whatever it happens to be, do you find that sometimes those folks defer care? Absolutely, they defer care, not just because of the deductible, but because it's difficult to even seek care. If it's an hour or an hour and a half to even get to a physician's office for some of those folks, they will just avoid it entirely. So I, I can't tell you how many employers I run into where they have you know, 50-year-old men who their last physical was their senior high school football physical, and they're trying to go self-funded. Well, there are just a number of landmines waiting for you if you go down that path without first identifying what the health of that population is. So when we start talking about things that are disruptive, obviously something that's been in the news a lot lately is telehealth. Do you see that helping or do you see that necessarily having being an adjunct to something like an on-site or a near-site clinic? Well, I certainly believe it's an adjunct. I think you need to have a relationship with a physician. And so 
telemedicine, one of the one of the positives of COVID is that the uptick in patients using telemedicine has gone up uh, exponentially. And I think that's a good thing. It's been around for years, but the usage of it was quite low. Even when you had an on-site or near-site clinic arrangement, they would just go into the clinic. But obviously with COVID, that has changed. People are, are using it more and more. And it's a very cost-efficient way to access healthcare. But I think you need to have First and foremost, that relationship with a with a physician or a mid level provider who has all of your medical records, knows your family history, and can really guide you down the healthcare continuum. Do you, in your experience, this is kind of an aside question, but in your experience, do you see physicians who are tired of the insurance chase and pay model becoming DPC physicians out in some of these rural areas? I, there are so many of them that are interested in doing that, that we have no difficulty finding physicians or mid-level providers who are looking to get out of the healthcare systems. They have made it so untenable for them to practice. They, they can spend five, maybe eight minutes with a patient, and then they're on to the next patient. That is no way to really help somebody with their healthcare long-term. And now, a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, back to our discussion. So let's go back to your your sequencing. We talked about, you know, step one is determining the medical condition of your employee base. Step two might be, or in conjunction with step one, doing some kind of an on-site or a near-site family care arrangement to get them some primary care. What's step three? Where do you go from there with an employer group? Well, it really depends on the, where is the pain point, right? So if it's the pharmacy plan, maybe we go there first. If it's available in the community where we can provide care navigation to the employees and their families, one of the biggest challenges for patients when they're told they need a colonoscopy or need to see an orthopedist or a podiatrist is, where do I find one? How do I know that this is a good person to see? Am I going to get good care here? Is this a value-based provider? So care navigation organizations can be particularly helpful in guiding the patient through the morass of the healthcare system and and then steering them to value as opposed to uh, steering them to the systems. Well, yeah, you, that's an interesting place to pause for a second because you know I, I call it the healthcare catch twenty two. If you go out to buy an automobile, you can rightly assume that a Bentley is probably a nicer car than a Chevy but you're paying 100 times or 10 times or whatever it is the cost of it. In healthcare, there's kind of an inverse relationship that most people don't understand where centers of excellence, facilities that do loads of the same kinds of procedures tend to drive down costs. How do you message that in that environment when they're already maybe a little nervous about having even an advocate that they might trust say, you should go here rather than there? How do you bring quality into that conversation? 
Well, there's, there's really two ways, and you're correct. There is no correlation between cost and quality in healthcare, and you're absolutely right. In most cases, it's quite the reverse. Some of the best physicians in the country are doing work for far less than you might even be able to get it locally. But there is, when you design the benefit plan, around a self-funded arrangement, and you're trying to help steer patients to value, one of the most important things you can do is build in incentives in that plan so that the care navigation team will give an employee, let's say as an example, three different choices. Choice one is you use the standard PPO that you have today. Choices two and three may be value-based providers where the company is agreeable to perhaps waive your copay or your deductible or some combination thereof to incent you to make the right choice. So do you also try to help these folks build uh, networks of high quality or high value physicians, or do you engage in bundled pricing and transparency and all some of those other things that folks, I guess they're not so disruptive now, but they were a few years ago, but they're still necessary. Yeah, I would say that the, it's a combination of a number of those things, certainly bundled payment arrangements for steerable events like the col- I mentioned colonoscopies, orthopedic surgeries, and some of those types of things. Certainly imaging and lab work can be done in a much more cost-efficient way if you're able to help the patient make the right choice. So you, you can get an MRI, and it can cost 3500 to $5,000 if you go to one of the healthcare systems, or you can go down the street with the same equipment they're using in the hospital and get it done for five or $600. So as an example, that's one of the places we help try to steer people to essentially the same procedure, but at a much lower cost. So if you're talking to an employer or a number of employers, and you're talking about setting up an on-site clinic, what kind of cost is involved in, in getting that done beyond the physician, just the physical facilities? Yeah, well, there's a number of ways that this can happen. So the majority of the groups that I'm working with are, let's say, 100 to 500 lives, and they're they're truly underserved when it comes to how to put all these things together because they're not quite big enough to have their own clinic arrangement. But if they would band together with like employers in the same community, they can get those economies of scale by banding together. And so one of the things we have done is I, I, a number of years ago partnered with a local architect and engineering firm. And whether it be an existing building in the community that we renovate or we can put up a new facility for the employers. From a cost perspective, they're typically you know, from a startup for a single employer, it's let's say it's two fifty or three hundred thousand to outfit a clinic. But if you put three, four, five employers together, they're sharing all of that cost. So that's kind of the idea is to put them together in a way that they have a say in what happens in the clinic, but also uh, they're sharing costs. So when you have that financial discussion, I mean, for some firms, especially smaller firms, you know, even fifty, sixty grand is a is a big chunk of change. What do you talk to them about in terms of ROI? What does that look like? If I'm going to make this investment, if I'm the CFO, how, besides that, obviously I'll have happier, healthier employees, and I don't mean to diminish that at all, but at the end of the day, it's ones and zeros and other numbers on a balance sheet and a P&L. What's that ROI look like? How do you explain that? So if we put together a, a nearsight clinic for a number of employers and we just do primary care, that's going to respond or relate to about a 10, maybe 15% reduction in healthcare costs. The cost of the facility and the cost of what if it be rent in a facility is really the smallest component. When you look at four employers together with 1,500 employees, you're talking 12 to $15 million a year. If we're saving them 
let's say 10% a year, that's, you know, 1.2 to 1.5 million each and every year that they're going to be saving on the medical plan. The cost of the rent and the facility over time become a very small factor in making that decision. So are you kind of like microscaling what Amazon Berkshire and those folks are doing, those kinds of ecosystems? It sounds a little bit like what, what they're talking about. Yeah, so actually what we're doing across the state of Wisconsin currently and in a few other cities around the country is looking to put together what we call, it's called an agile healthcare community facility, which has in a component in three suites, which the first suite is the primary care employer-based facility. And then right next to that, uh, physical therapy groups, a lot of surgery. The best surgery is the one you never have. So a lot of surgeries can be avoided with really good physical therapy and treating patients that way, and it's far less expensive. And then the third suite would be a specialty, uh, shared specialty facility where you might have orthopedics and GI and, and podiatry, ear, nose, and throat. And th- in today's world, mental health is a very important component. But in some of these communities, to have an orthopedist there five days a week isn't really necessary. So they can share a common space, common waiting room, uh, common reception, and and really help bring down the cost so they can be in the community one or two days a week to really provide the necessary care to those patients. And, you know, when you do all three of those things together, I think you add another 10 points, maybe 15, to the savings that's possible because you're steering them in the same building and you will increase compliance, which will build a stronger population from a health perspective long term. They're more productive and they get back to work faster. State laws permitting, do you also build a pharmacy into that arrangement? In almost every primary care clinic we have, there is some sort of pharmaceutical arrangement for particularly the maintenance medications. You know, as an example, I, I have a DPC doctor myself, and I pay eight bucks a year for my blood pressure medication. That's, you know, less than somebody pays for one copay at the Walgreens or the CVS. So we definitely try to put those in. It does two things. It it helps the patient save money. It helps them be more compliant with their care so they don't end up with heart disease and other chronic diseases that really add costs to a plan. But it also gets them into the clinic. So they go there to pick up their medications. They're talking to the staff. They're talking to the physician or the mid-level. And they're really developing further that relationship and engagement with the care provider. Now, when these physicians come into the community, do they end up creating admitting relationships with nearby hospitals or do you affiliate with a a nearby hospital or other facility in case of emergency care or in case of uh, a major surgery or, or such? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, a lot of times the systems that when we come into these communities will push back initially because they look at it as competition that we're taking patients away from them. We certainly are. But what ends up happening in almost every case is after they realize we're we're coming is they will try to partner with us. And in a lot of situations, we can negotiate with that healthcare system, direct contracts for that employer. And in some parts of the state of Wisconsin, we've actually gotten the employers out of their PPO arrangements and into a direct relationship with a specific hospital system. Well, I, you know, I understand the hospitals aren't thrilled because this, this kind of a practice tends to take away what they call their one and dones. But, but doesn't it also end up better for them because they end up doing the things that they're really best at and they, they can be most efficient and most cost effective at? Yeah, but they look at it a different way, David. They look at it as, you know, the primary care physicians in their model are really lost leaders. They're losing 100000 a year per doc. But those doctors create, you know, two to three million dollars in referrals back to the system. What we're trying to do in our facilities, there is no perverse incentive for referrals. So each of those in, or in, groups are independent. So there is no referral fee back 
from the physical therapy group or the specialty group back to the primary care group. It's only in the case where the patient needs that care are they referred over to that group or to the hospital for that matter. So we've got about a minute, minute and a half left. I'm curious, how do you see the future? I know you've got a certain growth slope. Maybe you can extrapolate that out and beyond underserved areas. Are you getting traction in overserved areas? Because those are the two markets that you kind of identified. We are getting traction in both of those areas uh, and for uh, vastly different reasons. You know, the, the rural areas are just access, entirely access. And how do I get somebody here to, to help us? And in the more dense areas of the state of Wisconsin, we're talking to 12 to 15 different parts of the state as we speak about putting these facilities in. We, we're getting commitment from the community where they're actually providing the land and TIF money so that we can help get these things off the ground to help the local employers. It's really an economic impediment in some of these communities. They can't hire more people or produce more product because they're, the burden of their health care costs, which is usually second or third on their profit and loss statement, is such that it doesn't allow them to expand or add more employees. So we're really trying to keep the money in the community and expand the employee base in those areas. Both areas. One last question. Do, do underserved communities that build these kinds of clinics find that it's easier than to attract employers? It's not only easier to attract employers and employees, it's actually easier to attract the providers who are going to staff these facilities when you have uh, more belly buttons to help. We're kind of marrying doctors with employers who have like minds. That's a great place to end our conversation. And we, we hope you come back and, and let us know how all of this is kind of playing out. Bob Pfeiffer, principal at Disruptive Strategies. Bob, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with our audience. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.